chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We also have church uh, Bibles provided for you underneath the chair in front of you. Uh, there, if you're going to use one of those, it's on page 812 of your church Bibles. Um, it's kind of exciting. We've been through this entire fall semester. We've been going through the Sermon on the Mount. And we are down to the last third of Jesus' sermon to his followers. And what I would want to say as we are about to hear God's word being read is that this is a climax. This portion, verses 1 through 12, is the climax of Jesus' sermon. Why? Well, think about what we've gone through over this fall semester, over these last, I would say, what, six, seven, no more, more like nine weeks. What we've heard is God's law summed up for us, right? Things like chapter 5 that describes the character of someone who is a follower of Jesus. People who are brokenhearted, pure in spirit, who are poor in spirit, who are meek, right? I mean, these are things that we recognize as being very hard for us to live by, yet this is what is described as a follower of Jesus. Then we looked at in chapter 6, what does that look like? Well, you can't be angry. And so it's not just do not murder, but if you have hate in your heart, you are murderous. We talked about sexual ethics. We talked about things like last week we heard that, well, where do you store up your treasures? Do you worry and are you anxious? And we are given all of these laws and it can be overwhelming. But at the same time, as we are overwhelmed by it, what do we do with the law that God has given to us that Jesus just preached? I think one tendency we can do is say, well, now I'm going to use what God has given to me, and I'm going to judge every single person out there according to what Jesus has preached, right? Or we could use it to look into our own hearts. But the tendency we have when we just read or study chapter 5 and 6 is to say, well, is so-and-so keeping it? Oh, well, that person is an angry person. Oh, that person is definitely lustful. Or this person is covetous and is worldly because they buy the best cars and have the nicest house and they wear the best clothes. But here Jesus gives us this summation of how are we to handle God's word. How are we supposed to actually use it? To just judge others or to judge our own heart? And so that's what Jesus brings to us. And I'm going to have Jenny Lynn read God's word. So let's pay attention to God's word here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. That you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? 
If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you, and Lord, we do ask that you would give, eye, you would give us eyes to see, not the people around us, but those that we think are better, that we are better than, but Lord, that we might be able to look inward at our own hearts, so that Lord, we might be restored, so that we could bring restoration to our city, to our communities, to our families. We ask that you do that now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. We have a lot of physicians here, um, whether residents, attendings, in fellowship. But I want to ask if anyone knows what Anton Babinski syndrome is. Anybody? Put, sh- put some shame into our doctors here in the room. I wouldn't be surprised if our physicians or attendings don't know what this is. It's a rare disease, but it's one of the eye. And what it is is that it, the brain stops getting actual information, usually because of a stroke or a head trauma, from the outside world through the eyes, but it refuses to admit that it's blind. So it creates images for itself by different sensory. So you'll hear different things happening. So you might hear your wife or you might hear the crowd or cars running by. And so because of your experience, you can your brain puts those images into your mind and thinks that you can actually see when you can't. You're getting no light to your eyes, to the brain, to be able to see. And people think that they're not blind when they actually are. And this could last for actually a few days. But they'll begin to finally realize that something is wrong when they start running into walls. Or when someone hands them a pen, but they don't know where the pen is, and they grab air or drop the pen. And here, what's so fascinating as we think about this is that Jesus talks a lot about our eyes. How healthy or unhealthy our eyes are. And here, as we read, Jesus is asking us, is your vision impaired? Why? Because our vision determines how we go through the world, how we think about ourselves, how we view the world around us, even how we view God. And in this passage, as we look at this, our assessment of ourselves and others many times is inaccurate. So the way we treat each other falls short many times of even our own standards that we have of ourselves and of other people. And here what Jesus does is he calls us out and gives us a corrective path, one that is full of grace and of God's love for us. And I want to do this by looking at three things. The great warning, the grace to obey, and lastly, um, what was the last thing? The golden opportunity. So first, let's look at the great warning. What does Jesus mean when he says, judge not that you not be judged? Some commentators say that this is 
the most known verse for people who are not followers of Jesus, more than back in the day when it was John 3.16. And many times what I would say is that this has been misinterpreted. What does it actually mean that God, Jesus says, judge not? Does it mean that we are not to assess and determine what is right or wrong ever? Certainly not, because what Jesus does later in verse 6 is he actually labels people dogs and pigs. And in many other situations, Jesus begins to make assessments. So it can't be that we can just never make any kind of assessment or discern or make any kind of discernment. But what Jesus means when he says judge not is that he's actually looking at the attitude of our hearts. What I mean by this is think about people who believe something different than you. People who belong to a different political party than you. People who do different things than you. It's not that we can't make assessments, but it's that we think we're better than the people that are different than us, that belong to a different group than us, that do things differently than us. It's this attitude of superiority, and it's one of condemnation. It's judging and making assessments thinking that you are so much better and they are less than. That's what Jesus is warning against. It's one of condemnation when we put people down. And many times we judge because we think that we are taking the place of highest authority, don't we? That's why Jesus says, why are you caring so much about that little speck that's in another person's eye when you have this huge log in your own. We think we are so much better than other people. We assume we know what's going on in someone else's heart. We assume that we're always right. And we rain down our judgment on others for what they've said or what they've done or what they believe. I mean, think, of, think about it for a moment. Our current culture right now the question is not that we make an evaluation and be discerning that something is right or wrong, but it's our attitude thinking that we are so much better than the person that's on the left or on the right, or what we view on immigration or what we view on gun control, or how someone raises a child, or what they wear, right? I mean, we are always thinking that we are so much better than everyone else. And when we make judgments and, and, and discern what is right or wrong, we elevate ourselves while we push other people down. I mean, let me just give you an example. I used to, and I use that word carefully, I used to. Whenever I saw other pastors who are like jacked and like built, and like you just see like the V, I judge them. Why? Because... They're egotistical, they're not busy enough to go pastor people and work, that they're in the gym for like two, three hours a day. And I used to always think very lowly of pastors who were built and jacked and worked out and lifted weights. But if you followed along in this sermon series, you've known that over the past few months, I've been working out. And I'm looking in the mirror and checking myself out to make sure that I'm getting bigger and stronger, right? 
And we do that. I'm looking at the spec in other pastors. Well, even before I started working out, I cared about the way I looked. I cared about the clothes I wore. I cared about how I communicated and preached to you and how you viewed me as a pastor and as a shepherd. We think we're so much better than we are. But the second thing we do is that we think we see with absolute clarity than other people while we have this huge log in our own eyes. We think we have the best perspective over all things and we make these judgment calls and think that we're so much better than other people. Socio sociologists have this word called this RCO factor and what it means is repugnant cultural other. And basically what sociologists use this for is that there are accepted behaviors, right? Accepted behaviors, accepted beliefs, accepted things that we are to say. And if you do not believe or hold to those things, you are repugnant. And that is how right now our culture is living and behaving. If you do not believe in these set of beliefs, or attitudes that comprise of the majority, you're repugnant to me. And what we operate by is that it's more important to hate the RCO, the repugnant cultural other, than to affirm and support the people who you agree with. So how do I know you're one of us? Because you hate the right people. So you don't even know what you stand for or what you believe. It's just as long as you hate the repugnant other, then you're in the right group. And you think that you see clearly. You hold a different view than me, then I'm better than you. And what we do is we ignore our own faults. We can't see clearly. We can't see with absolute clarity. I'm not like that. I would never do that. And what does Jesus say in verse 3? He says, it's a speck in the other person while you have this huge log in your own eye. And you're looking at that speck in your roommates, in your classmates at school, maybe even your parents, your siblings, your children. And it angers you, maybe your coworkers. And it angers you when you see that speck in the other person's eye. Dallas Willard, he said, condemnation is the board of the eye. It blinds us to the reality of the other person. We cannot see clearly how to assist our brother because we cannot see our brother. You see that? And here Jesus gives us this kind of warning when we go to verse 6 and we see this, this, this analogy or this illustration metaphor of dogs, pigs, and pearls. Look at what Jesus says. He says, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, what is Jesus getting at? What Jesus simply is saying, because at time, this is what he's saying. He's saying, we are to show compassion on those who do not respond favorably to the things of God, because precisely because they cannot. Without the Spirit, we will allow, we will all follow our native cravings, like dogs and pigs, versus the things of God. In the same context, Jesus says we should not assume the position of judge. Pearls was the gospel. It was the kingdom of God. And we cannot 
throw our judgment on those who do not value and see the kingdom of God clearly yet. So when you think about an example like sexual ethics, if someone is not a follower of Jesus, how can we just throw our judgment and condemnation on someone who still does not value the pearl of God as the kingdom of God? We are to be slow and patient. Some of you have family members who are yet to follow, who have yet to be followers of Jesus. Are we to condemn everything that they do and bring judgment on what they are to do because they are living in the dark? No. We're supposed to show compassion. And all of us are like pigs and dogs, except by the grace of God. And so we're called to be patient. We're to show compassion and mercy and love. I think in one area, if I pick at Christian conservatives, is that we are too quick to judge, too quick to be harsh. But what does it look like for followers of Jesus to see the Savior spend time with prostitutes, tax collectors, murderers, and thieves? Not to bring condemnation, but to show love and grace and mercy. That's what Jesus is getting at. And my question for us is, have you seen this week a speck in someone else's eye? What speck have you seen this week in someone else's eye? It could be your children. It could be your spouse. It could be your friend. It could be your coworker. Who is it that angers you? That gives you such a heart of a critical spirit. But Jesus is saying, look at that log in your own eye. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, it brings us to the second point, the grace to obey. At first, I thought about this passage, this, these verses 7 through 11. And I said, well... Two weeks ago, we had the particularization service, and Andrew Vandermoss, who was our guest speaker, you know, kind of preached on it, so I could just kind of go over it and skip right to verse 12. But as I thought about verses 1 through 6, and just the burden that I carry, because I am one who has a very judgmental heart. You know, this morning, I woke up, and as I was leaving the house, I was like, oh my gosh, my kids never clean up after themselves. How many times am I going to have to tell them to clean up? How many times am I going to have to tell them so you can't play video games in the morning? Like, is this like, do I have to sound like a broken record? As I go out of the house and as I'm on the road, why is this person driving so slow? Why are they driving 30 miles when it's 35? You should be able to go 40. When I'm at Starbucks, I'm like, why is she holding the top of the lid where my mouth is going to be? <laughs> when I get to church, it's like, whose child, who, who's the parent of this child? It's like, as I'm out in the foyer, why are adults not in Sunday school? You know, like on and on and on. And even here, like, John, why are you going so long? <laughs> you know, like, I am one who thinks that I have it all together and I am better than every single one of you in this room. 
And that has been my whole week. Like this, is, this has come alive for me because of how judgmental and better I think that I am of every single person in this room. And I bet for all of us in this room, we are the same way. And so what are we supposed to do? I think Jesus purposely brings back the importance of prayer after he's just spent time in it in, in chapter 6. He says, ask, seek, knock. How are we supposed to have wisdom and discernment? How are we supposed to have a spirit of humility to be able to see the log in our own eye? Go to the Lord in prayer. Why? Because guess what? When we go to the Lord in prayer, what are we doing? We are admitting that he has the most ultimate authority, not me. When I go to the Lord in prayer, I admit that Jesus, God, is the only one who sees with absolute clarity. And so I need to ask him so that I might see with God's eyes. When's the last time you prayed or asked somebody, I have such a judgmental heart. Pray that I would see with clarity. Pray for humility that I might not judge you. Or might not judge my family or my children. For parents, have you thought about that? How we think we're doing the right thing and bringing judgment against our kids and punishment, but at the same time, we think we're so much better than them when we're not? You've heard me say, we just hide it better than our kids. Or to our friends and neighbors. What does it look like for us to go to the Lord in prayer? But not only that, but also because we are assured of his love. I love how Jesus uses humor. And he says, verse 10, if he asks for a fish, we'll, we'll give it, or verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus is reminding of the Father's heart and love for us. And so many times we use judgment and we use our critical spirit. Why? Because we need to prove our worth. We need to make something of ourselves. And so we're going to condemn others while lifting ourselves up so that we might feel good about ourselves. But here what we're reminded as we go to the Lord in prayer is that God is full of love. He loves you. Even when the worst is known, love is still offered to you. And when we're assured of that kind of love and compassion from our God, our Heavenly Father, we can rest assured, have humility, and not think ourselves better than anyone else. I think that's why we are called to go to the Lord in prayer. And that's the grace we need. We are assured of His love. And we're called to go to the Lord in prayer, to ask, seek, and knock, because he will answer. Not just anything, but specifically here, that we might be people of humility to see the log in our eye before we look in the speck in the other. And the beauty of that is that that's what Christ did for us, right? He asked his father when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and what was his answer? It was silence. He was not given when he was asked, when he asked. When he sought the Lord, his father, 
It was not found. He went to the cross of suffering. And when he knocked and knocked continually, the door was not open. But he was forsaken on the cross as he cried out, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus did this so that we might have access to our Father. And so that every time we go to the Lord, we are given. We are found. And the door is open. This is the beauty of the gospel. And it assures us of his love for us. Which brings us to the last point, the golden opportunity. And really the point of this is, so what? What does this look like for us in our community? You know, this golden rule in verse 12, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. There have been many others in history that have said something familiar. Confucius, he said this, but in the negative. He said, do not do, not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. The Old Testament Apocrypha said, do not do to anyone what you yourself would hate. And then Hillel, the Jewish rabbi, said this, which is recorded, says, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. Now for us, just kind of doing a quick, uh, quick purview of this, we would say, well, okay, I mean, it's really similar. But is it? By stating it in the positive, Jesus flips it on his head and says, rather than the negative, the golden rule is going to be stated in the positive that whatever you wish what others would do to you, you would also do to them, is actually very different. Think about it. If you don't want something done to you that someone else would hate, what do you really have to do? Nothing, right? Just just be silent, be quiet, keep to your own self, and don't do anything. It doesn't take a lot. But here, by Jesus flipping it on his head, by making it positive, what does it take? It requires so much. It takes imagination, right? If I want my house clean, I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. So if I'm going to serve my wife well and clean the kitchen, I'm actually going to clean the pots and pans that I never touch. It takes imagination to think, how can I love and serve someone else? Because these are the things that I would want to do. It takes courage to step out of our comfort zone to serve someone else and get involved in the mess. And it takes sacrifice. This is costly. This golden rule that Jesus gives is like no other in history. To be able to think of to serve someone the way you would want to be served takes imagination, courage, and it's costly. So how do we do this? As Jesus is forming our community of restoration, I thought of a few things. First, is we need to be a confessional community. What I mean by that is, do you see the log in your own eye? Or are you so consumed with the speck in other people that you never even address your own eye? We need to be people of repentance. We need to be able to ask the Lord to go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. 
to see what is actually in our own eyes so that it might be repaired and restored. But secondly, we need to be a diverse community. Are you just in your own echo chambers? Or do you, are, are you filled with this inner circle, inner ring, as C.S. Lewis calls it, to be filled with people who think differently than you, who look different than you, who are in a different socioeconomic level than you, who don't look like you at all? Do you have that? If you don't, then my bet is that we are very critical. Because if you have everyone that looks and thinks and, and believes the same things you do, you'll never be able to put yourself in their shoes. Because you always elevate and put others down. The RCO, the repugnant cultural other. But are we filled with people who are different? But it just can't be that. We also need to be a listening community. We are so quick to speak, especially today. You might, on the outside, seem like you are you're open, you're willing to listen, but on the blogosphere, on Facebook, you're so quick to comment. Why? Because there's this, there's this huge gap that protects you. You're anonymous. That person lives 100, 200, 300, 2,000 miles away. But what does it look like for us to listen to the other to get to know their values to get to even know what they like what they dislike our community that we're in in all of that is actually a very liberal community and some of our best relationships and friends are with those are ultra liberal but we have gotten to know them and they've gotten to know us because we are the rco to the liberal community but they love us because they've gotten to know who we are. They love us for our character, for our servanthood, though we don't do it perfectly. Are we willing to listen and engage and not speak so quickly? And lastly, are we a restorative community? All this whole time, I've left out this aspect of actually fixing the speck in the other person's eye. But Jesus never discounts that, right? He says, first address the log in your own eye. Then, what does he say? Then go. Right in verse 5. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. But until you address the log in your own eye, you can't go fix the other person. A speck actually matters, right? Have you ever gotten like a bug in your eye? It's like you start tearing up. You can't see. You have to have to have surgery, not a bug, but something gets in your eye and you have to have surgery. It actually hinders and hampers somebody's physical well-being. And if we truly are restoration community, we need to be committed to being people who will not only go to the Lord and, and be restored in our own spiritual well-being, but also in the lives of others. But here, let, listen to this. Jaron Bars, my professor when I was in seminary, said this. He brought up this situation where a classmate brought up the, uh, the question of, well, what if a classmate of mine is sinning in the area of lust and I saw things on the computer? What should I do? Do I call him out on it and call out that speck? And Jaron Barr said this. He said, no. 
not unless you are willing to help him and walk alongside him. See the difference? If you just call someone out, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, that's just condemnation. You're just calling them out, saying that's wrong, and you just leave them alone. That's what Jesus is going, speaking against. But when we truly are calling and being a restorative community, you are going to call that brother in love or sister in love, and you are willing to sacrifice your time, sacrifice your energy to be able to walk alongside your brother or sister so that we together might be a community of love that is growing in our renewal of being people who are being made more like Christ. That's what it means to be a restorative community. Mother Teresa said this, and I'll close here. People are often unreasonable, irrational, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some unfaithful friends and some genuine enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and sincere, people may deceive you. Be honest and sincere anyway. What you spend years creating, others would, could destroy overnight. Create anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today will often be forgotten. Do good anyway. Give the best you have and it will never be enough. Give your best anyway. In the final analysis, it is between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. We know that this is hard for us to do because we are people who are full of pride and judgment and we think we are so much better than the person that is next to us. But Lord, I pray that you would give us a life and a character of humility. Give us the ability to see the log in our own eyes. And give us wisdom. Give us forbearance. Give us forgiveness and love for others so that we might become a, a new community that isn't just formed by a, a new ethic that Jesus has given to us, but, Lord, that we might be people who understand the grasp of what Christ has done for us, that he has given us life. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us that kind of encouragement, give us that kind of hope for today as we live our lives for you and for others. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.